source of that energy is God. Thus, nature, in Swedenborg's view, derives life in all its forms from that creative energy, which would be dead without divine influence. End quote. Your take. Uh, this is significantly above my pay grade. I know. I just know, <laughs> I, 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 I just know about words and stuff, man. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. It's not what you think, I swear. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Howdy to you as well, sir. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is so much harder to do, but we always try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, this week, and you're all gonna love this, we have the Swedish theologian, Hold your applause, it gets better. <laughs> Scientist. Oh. Philosopher. Oh. Mystic. Ah. And basically proto-Alex Jones, known as Emanuel Swedenborg. That's right. And without further ado, I think it's time to head down to the history lab to break down this doubtless, well... Okay, from that description, it sounds like it's going to be really boring, and I know we've been covering a lot of conquerors and, like, kings and stuff recently. I felt like it was time to change gears and get to some really weird shit. Uh, I promise this is going to be one of the weirder ones. Uh, so I think it's time to head down to the history lab. Let's do it. Mysteries, secrets, and science, there existed abyssal miners. Those who would plumb the depths of human knowledge, magic, the divine, in search of truth and understanding. One such man was named Emanuel Swedenborg, a man who feared no darkness and sought to know just what the hell was going on at every turn. Join us as we delve into the shrouded world of the underground enlightenment and search for enlightenment ourselves. So, George, tell me, if you had to have a revelation from God, what would that revelation be, and what would you do to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, let's see, let me, let me think about this one. Well, I know this is going to be pretty uh, pretty stereotypical for me, but honestly, I think I would like to have a revelation that would tell me what the original language of mankind was and how it worked and what the grammar was and all the boring rules about prepositional phrases and stuff. I think that would be pretty bitchin'. Well, uh, that is pretty cool, I guess. But, like, what? how could you prepare the way of the Lord knowing all of that? Well, easy. I would start some sort of weird political activism campaign demanding that Walmart start putting its price signs in that language in addition to English and Spanish. Nice. <laughs> and what about you, Aaron? If you were to have a revelation from the beyond, what revelation would you have and how would you prep for the oncoming boogaloo? Uh, I think I would have a revelation. Oh my god, what the fuck is wrong with my m- Well, if I had to have a revelation, uh, I would want it to be something like what Joseph Smith had, where basically you become a god, and, uh, you discover an ancient civilization. And I would do what Joseph Smith did, but I would do it better, in that I would not just 
colonize Salt Lake City. I would colonize it and then build a massive, like, fortress. But it wouldn't be on the ground. It would be in Salt Lake City, and it would be like a floating battleship with guns pointed in every direction. And I would, uh, I would use that to preserve uh, my Mormon religion and uh, my Hot Pockets. <laughs> okay, so two, two questions. Uh, first, yes. would you also get kicked out of Pennsylvania like he did? You know, if you get kicked out of Pennsylvania, you're probably a pretty weird dude. So, I mean, I, honestly, at some point, I am going to get kicked out of Pennsylvania. You and I both know this is uh, basically inevitable, right? I mean... <laughs> true, true. Yeah. And but if then I got kicked out of so... Illinois, I wouldn't mind so much, because... Well, I mean, that's just a badge of honor. Like, I'd wear that on my lapel. <laughs> yeah. So the the image I'm getting Second is question. kind of kind of like the um try I'm stretching back here that weird like floating asteroid palace thing above that city in Morrowind. You remember that? Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember that thing. Yeah, it's like some sort of like the weird yeah. jail asteroid that floats above the city. That's what I'm kind of picturing. Is that is that the image you're going for? I think I think it is. And you know, that's an even better thing to point out because I think I'd also prepare the way of the Lord by being able to fly while I meditate like Vivek. I remember I got onto that asteroid with one of those like flying potions and then I was being chased by all the guards and I like fell off it and didn't have another flying potion and fell to earth and died. <laughs> uh that sounds like something an Enwa would do. <laughs> But in the meantime, computer, please bring up Emanuel Swedenborg. So, Aaron, in the interest of allowing the viewers to imagine this story while they shop, work out, drive, and or avoid the desolation of this modern world in whichever way seems best to them, tell me, what did Emanuel Swedenborg actually look like? That's easy. He looked like an alien. From the many paintings I can find of this illustrious gentleman, I can conclude that he is half alien, half man, and knows more about the universe and the wonders of Antarctica than any living soul this side of perdition. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And Antarctica is not at all related to the episode, I just like Antarctica. Oh, I, you got my hopes up, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, he also has your classic white powdered wig and eyebrows as thick as the baleen of a humpback whale. Do they have baleens? I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a biologist. I'm a scientist, damn it, or a doctor, whatever. I'm, a sci I'm not a biologist, I'm a scientologist. <laughs> 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 he, he, he's also, I don't know if you can see it in the picture, but he's also got this weird little mustache that's, like, ver like barely visible. Um, I thought that was just dead skin. Yeah, you wish. <laughs> um, and he's got a nose that's so big, it'd be perfect for sledding this time of year. It does have a gentle slope. Yep. But most notable of all of his features are his gray eyes, which bear the expression of one who absolutely knows everything, including the grave sins you committed in the dark last night. And you don't even know about those. No, I don't, but but he does. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, uh, shall we start things off with Emanuel Swedenborg's early life? That would be the orthodox choice. Yes, and orthodox we will be. So, 
To the listeners out there, you may actually be wondering why I chose this random man from history whose name you don't, probably don't even recognize. Well, well, heck, I mean, not just the listeners, I'm wondering. I know, well, we'll get we'll get to it, and I think you'll see why by the end, why I picked this guy. Uh, because he's really in my wheelhouse, you know. So, mainly though, I picked him because nobody's really heard of him, that's part of the reason. And I want, whenever I want to do an episode where we don't get any plays, I pick people we that nobody's heard of. Uh, and secondly, I picked him because I wanted to talk about the Enlightenment, and I couldn't find a way, uh, to do that that wasn't boring as fuck. Uh, Swedenborg is a philosopher and a scientist, which sounds boring, oh yes, but trust me when I say this man was on a level beyond normal human comprehension, and that's why we're covering him today. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'm, I'm excited to learn something. <laughs> You're gonna learn, baby. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Swedenborg himself was actually born in a pretty good spot, which is to say he was born in the Swedish Empire. News to me that they had an empire. Oh, come on, you've listened to Sabaton. Oh, I know. At the very least, I've made you listen to Sabaton. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm, I like making fun of, fun of Swedes. I think a lot of people do. <laughs> Probably. So anyway, he was born in the Swedish Empire to a wealthy mining family. Uh, on January 29th, 1688... His father was a man named Jesper or Jasper Swedberg, uh, who was a bishop of the Church of Sweden in the town of Skara. Is it important that if you add up the last two digits of the year, it equals the number that's the first two digits? It might be, because we're going to get into that weird number shit at a certain point here. Um, but only I knew it. What? I knew it. Yep, but only tangentially. Um, no. Because... Well, I'll, t I'll explain later. I'll just explain it later, okay? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so also his father, Jesper or Jasper Swedberg, that was his original name, Swedberg, um, in, you know, which would later be changed to Swedenborg when the entire uh, family was ennobled by the king. Um, Jesper Swedberg was a bishop in the Church of Sweden in the town of Skara, and he was a well-known man. Mostly because he gave really good, like, like hard-hitting, fire-and-brimstone sermons. Uh, he'd also travel a lot, and he did what he could to share what he'd learned in other European countries with the Swedish king, Charles XI, which uh, Charles really liked, because getting, like, information and knowledge from other countries was good uh, for the kingdom. Fair, fair. No. And, uh... He liked it so much, in fact, that he made Jesper the official court chaplain of all of Sweden. So, a little, little bit of a promotion there. He's just a little preacher. Um, and also a mining family owner. He owned, he owned mines, whatever. Um, so anyway, one of Jesper's first assignments as court chaplain was to write a book of hymns. So he did, but it was heavily criticized for being too focused on being good and not focused enough on faith, building faith. And this caused... Is, it, is this one of these weird Protestant controversies that I'm too dumb to understand? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> um, this did indeed cause some controversy among the Protestants, as you might imagine, uh, considering the unstable times Protestant Christianity as a whole had been facing for hundreds of years at this point. The hymnal was revoked and was republished a few years later with a heavier focus on faith and not on being good. And this is the kind of bullshit that Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, Jesper's second son, saw as he grew from babe to lad. Um, 
There was a time when Jesper attempted to complete a translation of the Bible, which is significant later. Um, but he did fail in this task due to uh, a waning trust in his abilities because of this whole hymnal controversy. He was soon appointed a professorship in theology at the University of Uppsala, Uppsala um, and became a bishop about seven years later. Ah, keeping it in the family. That's right. And at the core of all this activity was Jesper's interest in the theological realm of Christianity. Which, of course, meant that he got really involved with things like, like this other dissenting groups, such as the Lutheran Pietist movement. And, of course, like everybody else who wanted to do anything of importance or investigate anything at all within the church, he eventually got labeled as a heretic. Um, but that didn't exactly do anything to damage his interest in different points of view in regards to theology. He just kept going. Yeah. It's impo it's probably important uh, to note here, just for background, that the Church of Sweden is an established state church, and so you're not really allowed to have other versions of Christianity in Sweden. Right. So that's why it's such a problem when you start talking to people who aren't part of the state church. Right. I mean, believe me, I get it, but it didn't stop him because he was already, you know, on the road. Um, you know, he's digging the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, yeah, just for the sake of the listeners, wanted to clarify the whole state church Well, thing. it's not like I knew that either, so... <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, so all <laughs> of this controversy had a big influence on his son, Emmanuel, who would take these interests uh, and expand on them throughout his life, causing huge problems while doing so. We'll get there. Uh, and this began largely with his time at the University of Uppsala. Um... So we're just kind of going to blaze through Emmanuel's childhood and just get to where he went to university. So while he was attending college uh, at Uppsala, he stayed with his brother-in-law, a man named Eric Benzelius the Younger, which is the best name I've ever heard. Um, he sounds like a, wiz a wizard to me. Yeah, well, there, we're going to get into some wizardry here in the very next sentence, actually. Um, Eric introduced Swedenborg to a Kabbalist Jewish convert to Christianity. Uh, and this man was called Moisha ben Aharon HaKohen of Krakow. Um, and he had a Christian name when he converted, uh, which was Johann Kemper. So yeah, I told you right off the bat, we're going to get into that weird stuff. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. So, and this is, this is related to an episode we did before about a guy named Sabbatai Zevi, who basically, well, we'll get into it here in just a second. So Johann Kemper, as we mentioned, was a former Kabbalist Jew of the Sabbatean variety, which meant he was a follower of Sabbatai Zevi, a prominent figure in uh, Jewish history that we covered on a previous episode. And for those of you who didn't listen to that crazy shit, um, I recommend it for one, but also you need to know that Sabbatai Zevi um, was the leader of a Jewish cult uh, in which he claimed he was the Messiah, and later shapeshifted into a Muslim when the Turks called him on his bullshit. Uh, it's a whole thing. I highly recommend listening to the Sabbatai Zevi episode. It's some, or Zevi, or whatever. Um, did you ever listen to that one? I did, actually. I, I remember it distinctly because I had to stop halfway through because I was afraid my headphones were going to short out because I was listening while walking in the middle of the night and it started to pour down rain and we were at some critical juncture in the story and I'm like, I want to hear what happens, <laughs> but like it's raining harder and harder. I'm like, my headphones are going to short out. Yeah. God. And so I ended up eventually stopping and uh, getting under shelter before I continued. <laughs> Well, if that doesn't tell you guys uh, what a what a wild ride that one is, if it could hold George's interest, 
I don't know what will. So, um, Johann Kemper uh, had been a he had been a Sabbatean, and he had been a student of a prophet known as Zadok of Grodno. This is literally a wizard, I, isn't it? I know. <laughs> isn't there a Monty Python reference to some Zadok who's a wizard? I don't remember. Uh, well, there's a famous piece of music called uh, The March of Zadok the Priest. Well, that might be who we're talking about. I really don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure pretty sure it's from the Bible or some shit. So, Zadok of Grodno had made a lot of waves in Sabbatean circles um, by predicting that Sabbatai Zevi himself would return to planet Earth in 1695. And when Sabbatai Zevi, or Zevi, I don't care, did not appear... Moshe ben Aharon Hakohen of Krakow went searching for more answers. Because he was like, wait, you predicted this shit. He didn't come back. It was a little bit like the Millerite movement. Um, the Great Disappointment. You ever hear about that one? Is that with the Seventh-day Adventists? Yes. Or, yeah, okay. Yeah, Proto-Seventh-day Adventists. Um, the, uh, some guy named William Miller predicted the, uh, end of the world and... Jesus was going to come back and he didn't and people were like literally out in a field waiting for Jesus to show up and they just started crying. <laughs> just sad. Um, but anyway, so uh, Moisha decides to search for more answers and at the end of his journey he actually became a Christian and like we said, adopted the Christian name of Johann Kemper. But, but, this guy Johann Kemper um, didn't leave behind everything he would picked up with Kabbalism. Um, in fact, he was trying to find a way to derive Christian beliefs from Jewish and Kabbalistic thought. And he wrote a book about this called The Staff of Moses during his quest, um, which is actually a commentary meant to show that the Zohar, which was a foundational text of Kabbalism, was actually secretly a Christian book when read properly. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so he's a thinker, um, and he doesn't really show up in this story very much. Um, but I just wanted to include these details about, like, who, um, who, uh, Swedenborg was hanging out with in college. Um, I wanted to really emphasize the, emphasize, uh, the diversity of thought that Swedenborg was encountering during his whole university experience. So, like... I mean, these people, these people sound almost as weird as the people you were hanging out with in college. Uh, quite literally, yes. <laughs> so, when Swedenborg wasn't shotgunning Keystone Light and passing out in the gutter, all he was, he was doing all he could to crack the code of the universe and was really getting engaged with people who had all kinds of religious backgrounds in order to do so. And his experience with Benzelius the Younger was another good example of this. Benzelius had his roots in the Orthodox Church and challenged many of Swedenborg's views on things like Lutheranism, just naturally by just being Orthodox. So, this, so was he Greek? Uh, I really don't know. Um, but with a name like Benzelius, it has to be good. I don't know. <laughs> Greek? I don't know. Um, so yes, this is a bath of religious, theological, and spiritual thought. And it lasted anywhere from six to ten years and stretched Swedenborg's mind so much that he would never be the same. And his final dissertation was on the maxims of Publilius uh, Cyrus Mimus, Mimus, <laughs> I prefer Mimus, um, a Roman slave who put forward a philosophy of benevolence, freedom, and the ultimate importance of reason. I stole that directly from somebody who was telling me uh, what it was instead of looking into it myself. I don't know if you've ever heard of this Mimus before. 
Oh yeah, um, nobody calls him Mimas. Everyone just calls him Publilius Cirrus. Um, he has a lot of like really good witty one-liners. So if you go and crack open like an intro Latin textbook, guarantee you within the first like ten chapters, you'll get some like pithy one-liners because they're one-liners. They're short and easy to translate for students, and they're usually something witty. Do you know of any right off the top of your head? Off the top of my head, I I can't think of any. Um, but I know the Latin textbook you, you, that you used had some in it. I remember that. Yeah, I remember Publilius Cirrus, but I thought it might be a different guy because of the memes. But you know, hey, what do I know? So he writes this dissertation, and when it's all over, he decided to take a break from all this philosophy stuff and go on a grand tour through the Netherlands, France, and Germany. Uh, this helped ground him a little bit uh, from the heady drug of the university before he reached London. God forbid. Uh, where he would stay for four years. Dear God, has he no mind? Um, well, he does. We'll see that in a little bit. So, here he's, he would he kept a uh, pretty good correspondence with Benzelius. Uh, they sent letters back and forth all the time, because Benzelius was just, you know... He was, he was a, uh, a basically what you would call a patron of uh, Emanuel Swedenborg. He supported him financially for a good long while, because he believed that he was you know, going to be a genius. Um, and when Emanuel Swedenborg was spending these four years in London, he reported to Benzelius that he had discovered the works of Isaac Newton and was reading them virtually every day. Um, and here's where I need to make a side note about Isaac Newton. I might have mentioned this before, but I tried to do an episode on him and I went completely insane. So it might be a while before we do Isaac Newton. Um, so <clears throat> at this point, Swedenborg is in his early 20s and his mind is searching for new challenges to conquer. So he really starts to dig into physics, mechanics, philosophy, and poetry. Um, and he starts working on things like trying to determine, like figure out how to determine uh, one's earthly longitude using just the moon. He's working on how to like improve docks and shipping, and he's even working on how to build like submarines and airplanes. Um, and like I said, this whole time he's being supported by Benzelius, who believes that Swedenborg really does have the potential to be the greatest scientist and philosopher of the age. So he's got kind of like the uh, the Leonardo da Vinci thing going on. Yes. Yes. Uh, definitely a little bit. I saw some sketches of his flying machines. They look like they might have worked, but I, I'm no uh, engineer, so I couldn't say for sure. <laughs> Anyway, so, in 1714, Swedenborg went to France, God, um, to learn about telescopes for a year, um, before returning to his native land of Sweden, fully prepared to embark upon his decades-long adventure in science. So, he's back in the old homeland, um, and he still wants to continue down this scientific path. He really shifted away from, like, religion and, and spiritualism and all that stuff, uh, after he left school and just really went into these more mechanical and engineering fields. Um, <laughs> by way of magic. By way of absolute magic. Uh, also, Adventures in Science sounds like some sort of textbook we would have had in homeschooling. Oh, uh, yeah. It also <laughs> sounds like some kind of Netflix special, so... <laughs> um, anyway, so upon returning to Sweden, uh, Swedenborg met with King Charles Twelfth and an inventor named Christopher Pullum in an attempt to convince the king that the next big thing Sweden should start working on was a massive observatory. And a uh, fun fact for our more cultured readers, uh, Charles Twelfth is the Corollas Rex of the Great Sabaton album. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, Corollas being Latin for king, or for Charles, and Rex is just king, so King Charles, Corollas Rex. Well, that's hilarious, because when, when, uh, 
Swedenborg uh, recommended the construction of an observatory, King Charles XII just rolled his eyes. Uh, this scientific nonsense had no place in Sweden, especially when there were wars to fight. So he asked Swedenborg, is there anything else you can do besides learn about shit? And Swedenborg informed the king that he was indeed from a wealthy mining family. And this got him a royal appointment to be assessor extraordinaire on the Swedish Board of Mines in Stockholm. <clears throat> now, Swedenborg has achieved the status of having a real job, so he had to put aside some of his studies. Uh, but not all of them. Uh, he was still working on shit in the background. Um, he was working on a scientific periodical called Daedalus Hyperboreus, which is just the northern Daedalus, Daedalus, whatever. Um, which was just a journal that was created to record new inventions and discoveries and all things science, which is cool, because, um, you know, the, Sweden was kind of going through its own little scientific revolution at this time. Um, people were inventing shit, and, like, inventors were getting famous for inventing shit, so it was a whole thing. So one of the things featured in his periodical was his concept of a flying machine, uh, that he'd been sketching for absolute years, um... Which is pretty cool. It also included a couple other uh, inventions. Or actually, I should say, it focused mainly, though, on uh, Christopher Pullum's uh, inventions, because he was the famous inventor in Sweden at the time. So we have some documents from the era, typically letters that Swedenborg wrote to Benzelius, uh, outlining some of the inventions that Swedenborg was working on. These included the aforementioned flying machine and submarine, a machine gun, crazy methods of transporting boats over land, and a universal musical instrument which, quote, by the aid of which the most unskilled in music could play all kinds of harmonies that are found in the score, end quote. Does that mean he was in the inventor of autotune? <laughs> he was trying to be. <laughs> wow. A pox be Emanuel Swedenborg, the father of modern pop music. <laughs> Swedenborg, thank you very much. Emphasis, oh, sorry, Borg. Emphasis on the Borg, because uh, he is an alien. That is definitely true. The collective. Yeah. Um, so anyway, at his day job, Swedenborg put his genius to work, developing new and safer methods in mine of mining uh, than the ones that were currently being practiced in Sweden. And although he was officially just an assistant to Christopher Pullum, he excelled in his role and often traveled to countries oceans away to learn more about physical science in order to prove, improve his inventions. He uh, actually also frequently went to America, which is kind of interesting. Oh, this is, uh, this is like a pre-America America. America. Mm -hmm. um, so he was also at this time attempting to articulate what was his philosophy of nature, which was... I, I think it's pretty weird, but also not at all unfamiliar, um, because it was it was kind of it was a little bit like Tesla, um, in that Swedenborg was trying to explain the natural world in terms of frequencies and vibrations and all that weird hippie shit. Um, but he, you know, that's that's that was his real idea, and these these ideas are recorded in Swedenborg's. Oh, there's a, a lot of Latin here. You want to read it? Principia rerum naturalium sive novorum tentaminum phenomena mundi elementaris philosophicae explicandi. Yep. Yeah, that's it's there's God. This, Latin gets really really weird after like the fifth century, and you start having made up words like. <laughs> yeah. So like for example, philosophicae. That's just an adverb that was made 
from the actual noun. And it's just that 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 adverb I don't think appears anywhere in classical Latin. But in uh, the Middle Ages and beyond, they were they were willing to just keep making words following the pattern of existing words. And so you have lots of stuff that just uh, you'd never see in actual Roman Latin, but just following the patterns of how adverbs and stuff work. Uh, they were just willing to keep making new Latin words. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? If you want to write your books in Latin. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Does that hurt you? <laughs> I mean, Renaissance Latin gets gets pretty weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm very, very conservative in my Latin, so you know, it is a little bit, a little bit unsettling. <laughs> so anyway, um, instead, would you like to translate this Latin phrase, or should you just get the shit I read off Wikipedia? Uh, let's see. The the stepping off point, yeah. So the uh, the the beginnings of stuff, ah, of natural stuff, or of new. Uh, do they really? Yeah, that's not even. That's that's a weird word. Yeah, new um, new 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 tries. Literally, that's a made up Latin word. Uh, new tries for the uh, oh, nice gerund of the explaining <laughs> in a philosophical way. The Greek word borrowed into Latin, fine, <laughs> phenomena of the world. Well, that was, yeah, a, that's a, that was a good uh, shoot from the hip translation, but I'll just give you what Wikipedia said anyway, um, because it is nonsense apparently. So, it's called the basic principles of nature or of new attempts to explain philosophically the phenomena of the natural world. Which, well... I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, this Principia proposed that all of nature originated from a series of so-called first points, uh, which were, quote, the media... Yeah, which is what prin what Principia means. Right, right. <laughs> which were, quote, the medium between what is infinite and what is finite. Um, and these points are actually a power or a force, according to Swedenborg, and they move in a spiral motion to form bubbles or globules, globules, um, which then become the basis of all matter, which sounds crazy except for the whole atomic theory thing, so there's that. Um, I don't know if you have a reaction to globules of spiral motion or whatever. Okay, so I see. I was looking at the atomic theory. So you're, so you're, so the the sort of bubbles we're thinking of is kind of like the atom that has the the one center around which all those um, electrons and is it neutrons? I have no idea. <laughs> are going around in circle? I don't know. I, I took science at some point. We've got a physicist listening to just pulling their hair out. Like these guys are so dumb. Oh my god. Um, Look, science isn't science isn't real. That's true. Science is not real. Um, and speaking of fake science, uh, Swedenborg wanted to know more, uh, and he wanted to tackle more questions about, like, the relationship between the spiritual and physical realms of the universe. This is always when stuff starts to get really weird. It's about to get real weird. Swedenborg begins to ask questions like, If the body functions by means of a soul, where then does the soul reside? And what does one's soul actually influence in the human body? Uh, for the record, Lucretius was asking these questions well before the birth of Christ, so... Um, Lucretius just sounds like some weird bodily fluid to me. So... 
uncultured swine. <laughs> what else is new? So anyway, Swedenborg starts digging into anatomy, using the new technology of the microscope to its fullest advantage. And one of his conclusions was that the blood itself contained a very fine substance he called Lucretius. Just kidding. He called it spirituous fluid, which he believed contained the power of the seal of the the soul. He also proposed that the soul operated within the cerebral cortex and was the source of this spirituous fluid. And now for the most important ingredient, lobster soul. <laughs> what? Oh, it's it's a scene from Adventure Time. Oh, I, I don't watch Adventure Time. That's funny, though. I don't either, but I, there was a clip, it's like 10 seconds, where the weird dog thing is making a sandwich, and then it, he says the, the most important ingredient, lobster soul, as he, like, kills a lobster, and this, like, ghost goes and settles on the sandwich he's made. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, while all this was going on, uh, people were starting to notice Swedenborg's massive brain power. Um... And he was offered the position of chair of mathematics at his alma mater. Um, but he said no, because he didn't want to just focus on one thing. His brain was literally too big. I'm just imagining him now as one of those memes with the really swollen brain that like yep. fo forms the whole armchair the person is sitting <laughs> <Yeah>. in. <laughs> this whole episode's a big brain moment. Um, he also didn't want this position as the chair of mathematics because he had a bad stutter. Um, which was obviously only there because his mind operated at such speed that his physical body literally could not keep up. So, you know, you don't want a stuttering uh, mathematician. Like, that's the last thing you want. <clears throat> you, might, you, might, you might end up with a, an extra factor somewhere in the equation and accidentally make the atomic bomb or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, Swedenborg was already demonstrating uh, to us his mental capacity in many ways, but he's about to school us again. In the 1730s, Swedenborg doubled down on anatomy and started blowing minds so frequently he was declared an official weapon of mass destruction. Um, Swedenborg, like, ahead of his time, he came up with the concept of the neuron. He correctly identified the function of the cerebral cortex, uh, aside from the whole seat of the soul thing. Um, he, he uh, described and articulated the uh, hierarchy of the nervous system the actual function of the pituitary grand, uh, gland, um, and he also discovered, or I should say predicted, the association of frontal brain matter with intelligence. Um, well, well, I don't know what any of those things mean. <laughs> well, it's all very sciencey. Um, it's definitely, I, I can guarantee that it is sciencey. Yeah. Like, I'm, willing, I'm willing to sign on that. Yeah. So these ideas were all so ahead of their time that most people just couldn't see it. Like... Um, but as time went on, science began to verify these ideas as being exceptionally profound and indeed true to life. But he basically just thought it all up. Uh, like he had charts and shit, and he was like, that probably does this, and it would make sense if the, you know, the central nervous system were arranged in this hierarchy. Um, and it would like, it would take a literal century for people to start realizing how right he was about it. Like, that's how far ahead he was. That's how I feel about the memes I make. I imagine that one day they'll be properly appreciated. I, I think you're right. <laughs> so anyway, during this period in the 1730s, Swedenborg started to shift his gears back towards spiritual matters. Uh, having established, as he saw it, the location of the soul, he delivered his scientific opinion on the creation of the solar system 
and why it is the way it is. And I emphasize creation because he was a Christian, but he was saying, like, here's a scientific theory about, uh, or a hypothesis, I should say, about, like, what the fuck this place looks like and why it's arranged the way it is. Um, and his model, I should say his hypothesis, was known as the nebular hypothesis, which attempted to explain why the planets were arranged on a basically flat plane around an orb-shaped sun. Because, you know, the, the question was, well, if it's, a, if it's an orb, why the fuck doesn't stuff, like, orbit all over the place? Why does it, um, why is it basically on a flat plane? Um, and I didn't read too much into it because I'm not a science guy. Um, but this nebular hypothesis developed into what is now known as the Solar Nebular Disk Model, which is an official model of the solar system. And again, he just kind of thought it all up, which is suspicious. I'm still betting on Alien. He's definitely... He's been to space, that's for sure. So, Swedenborg then released a series of works on metallurgy, which was so useful that he became an international famous person and was officially renamed Mr. Worldwide. Uh, yeah, he, he basically released this compendium on different types of metal and how to achieve greater purity and what you were trying to smelt, and it worked so well um, that it was just an international hit. And he was like, hmm, I'm popular now, so how about I use this boost in popularity and release my other book called Regnum Animale in hopes that people would pick it up too. Um, and he didn't release this one on its own because, basically, uh, it was his first published attempt to explain exactly how the soul worked on an anatomical level. And he wanted people to, like, he wanted to demonstrate that he was a stable genius before he started talking about stuff like souls and things. Um, mm -hmm. So he released Regnum Animale, um, which, would you mind translating that, George? It means the animal kingdom. It does. Um, he wanted to release 17 volumes on, of this, actually. Um, and just a, a note on that, because uh, that sounds weird, Animal Kingdom, what would that have to do with people and souls? Uh, the Latin word animal literally means a thing that has a soul, which is why animals are different than inanimate objects. And so it's not like about, you know, giraffes and stuff. It's about things that have souls. Oh, I thought it was just something about anime, but I don't know. <clears throat> animation also movement yes aha see i can do things too um nah. so after he released the first volume in this 17 volume like just book of truth he published another one called dynamics of the soul's domain which also had a latin title but i stopped fucking around with that at this point um, and I found a summation of this work on swedenborg.com so i'll quote that website wait now. is that actually a website yes Oh wow. Yeah. He's got a he's got an interesting following. We'll get to that. So here's the here's the quote from the website. It says, uh, drawing on the works of contemporary scientists and philosophers, Swedenborg describes a subtle spiritual fluid that permeates and sustains all living creatures, existing in a complicated interaction with the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid. The origin of life is a sustaining energy that pervades all of creation, and the source of that energy is God. Thus, nature, in Swedenborg's view, derives life in all its forms from that creative energy, which would be dead without divine influence. End quote. Your take. Uh, this is significantly above my pay grade. I know. I just know, <laughs> I, 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 I just know about words and stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Um, 
I just I just wrote at the end of this though in the not script. I just wrote fucking out there, man. <laughs> um, because like I said, this guy is like he clearly is from space. Like he's on another level. Um, so up to this point, we've got a picture of a man who is not only incredibly intelligent, well versed in science and mathematics and geometry and all that good stuff. Well, we've also got a guy who's getting famous for his seemingly prophetic theories and insane intelligence. And uh, Swedenborg had lived a life to this point um, that would impress virtually anyone with its sheer intellectual and scientific output. But uh, something happened around the time Swedenborg turned 55. And we're not really sure what it was or how it happened. But in 1743, Swedenborg went from being a mere scholarly, illustrious gentleman a hundred years ahead of his time to ascend to virtually virtual intellectual godhood. And I think this is a great place to break for this week's honorable mention. Ah, yes, honorable mentions, the part of the show in which we break away from the main story to focus on something completely smaller. Um, <laughs> we use this part of the show to highlight something we may have discovered in research that was really interesting, but was basically too small to make a full episode out of, at least with the time we have here on We Talk About Dead People. So, with that introduction, I'd like to allow George to take it away with this week's honorable mention. Okay, let's do it. So, we are going to be stepping significantly farther back in time um, than good old Swedenborg. I know, me, bringing things farther back in time. Amazing, isn't it? What a concept. So, we're in fact, we are going to be going back all the way to 490 BC. So, quite Holy significantly. Shit. In fact, that might be the furthest back in time we've ever gone. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I think it might actually be. <laughs> so, and this is when the first Persian invasion of Greece happens. I know what you're thinking, but no. The second invasion is when the whole Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans, Gerard Butler's abs thing happens. That's not this. We're talking about something else. <laughs> so, this is the first invasion, 490 BC. And so, the Persians were planning on taking the city of Athens because Athens was the most prominent city um internationally at that point and so it was the one the persians thought would be a good one to take first and the city of athens sits on a peninsula so the persian plan was that they were going to split their forces which obviously was much much larger than the athenian forces because they literally had an empire thousands of kilometers across while athens was a little city state on the edge of it so obviously much much larger army and so they're going to split mm. this force and they're going to use their navy to land troops on the opposite side of the peninsula from the one the city's on. And while that part of their army is going to fight with the Athenians and, you know, keep the Athenian army occupied, they're going to sail around with the rest of their army and take the city while it was mostly undefended. So that's the Persian plan. Good plan. As, as plans go. Yeah, it's pretty good. And so the Persians had a uh, really, really good archers. Um, they're consider they would have been considered by the Greeks to be some of the best archers in the world, and they're probably from some far flung part of the empire, very very far away. So, they're you know a lot of these troops are coming from literally thousands of kilometers away, and so to the Greeks they are practically aliens. Ah, there's our connection, aliens. <laughs> so the Athenians have to come up with a plan of how they're going to deal with these archers because the Athenians don't don't really have the same ranged capability on the as the persians do and so they need to figure out a plan 
So what they decide to do is that they're going to have to sprint to close the distance quickly before the Persian archers can just massacre them. So that is what they, that's what they decide to do. They're going to meet the Persians on the shore, and as the Persians are unloading all their troops, they are going to sprint and attack them coming off their boats, which is, Holy shit. yeah, that's a moment of a lot of vulnerability when you're coming off your boats, right? Because you're not in ranks, you're kind of unloading. So the Athenians are well back from the shore, and so the Persians are like, okay, they're pretty far away, let's get, let's get everything unloaded and set up. And then as they're unloading, the Athenians sprint about 200 yards across the field in their armor, which is, you know, probably between 60 and 80 pounds, and attack the Persians as they're unloading and inflict heavy casualties and force them back onto their ships. So this this did not go according to plan, obviously, since they kind of got off their boats but didn't really get into ranks and were attacked before they were able to carry out their plan. So the Athenian commander sends a guy to run back to the city to tell them that they beat the Persians on the beach here. And so this dude runs 26.2 miles back to Athens from the place of this battle, which is called the Plains of Marathon. And he runs to the city and yells, Nike, which means victory. And he ends up dying of exhaustion because he runs this whole way and shouts that they won and then dies of exhaustion. And that distance that he ran is you know, 26.2 miles. That is the distance of a marathon, which gets its name from this battle and from this poor dude who had to run that right after the battle to tell the Greeks that they went one and then dies. Huh. And then, well, I was just going to say there should have been more, more uh, volunteers with orange juice along the road. Orange juice or rat poison and all that other stuff. <laughs> And so a few hours after he get, makes it back, then the rest of the Athenian army gets back. Uh, they took it a little bit easier and probably stopped for water, but they still covered that same distance. And then when the, Athe when the Persian Navy with the other force arrives, they find that the Athenian army is waiting for them at Athens. So they weren't able to, you know, take it while it was undefended like their plan had been since their army wasn't able to keep the Athenian army distracted. And so the Persians were so angry at all of this because this was not expected at all because, as I said, Athens is one little city-state and the Persian Empire is literally thousands of kilometers. And so they are absolutely pissed that this has happened. And so Xerxes, um, who was the uh, the son of, um, of the Persian emperor at this point, who was Darius, actually had a slave whose sole purpose was to tell him every morning, Master, remember the Athenians, to remind him that he had to take advantage of these guys who had stood up against his father. And eventually he does attempt to do this and launches a second invasion, which is where the whole Thermopylae thing happens. Though that time they actually do conquer Athens and burn it, but they end up being defeated later on. But that's the story of how marathons came into being, is you have to fight a battle and then run 26.2 miles tell everybody you won the battle, and then die. <laughs> There's significantly fewer casualties in a modern-day marathon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hmm. uh, and speaking of marathons, I will probably never run one unless I get motivated somehow. But <laughs> I will absolutely I never run one. This is, this is unfortunately true. <laughs> unless, of course, you were the guy who was sent by the Athenians back to Athens... <laughs> 
I could see you walking it. I don't know. I'm not a, not a huge fan of the Athenians, to be honest. Oh, really? I, I never would have guessed that. Yeah, no. I mean, they're they're kind of weird. I if if I had to if I had to like pick a Greek city state, I'd probably unsurpri- unsurprisingly probably I think I'd probably like Sparta better. Yeah. Well, not a bad choice. I thought I think Sparta was my favorite character in ancient Greek history class that I took. Um. As a whole. I didn't know you took an ancient <laughs> Greek history class. I did. I, I took it with that one guy. Smoked his pipe inside. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Good class. I thought we took it together. I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, that one. Yeah, the one specific, the class it was about Athens. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. I got you. Yeah. Man, I thought you'd forgotten me. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, okay. I thought you were talking about uh, just a general ancient history class. Nah. <laughs> okay, so thank you for that, George. Um, excellent coverage of the uh, whole marathon thing. I'm glad we didn't have to do a full episode about it because I'm frankly so bored. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Screw you too, Aaron. Oh, yeah. Screw you, sir. Screw you, an illustrious gentle sir. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to uh, Mr. Swedenborg here. So... For most of his life, Emanuel Swedenborg kept a journal. And in this journal, he wrote down not only trivial things, such as what he had for breakfast that day or what Mittens had done with the yarn. He wrote down his dreams in what has been creatively entitled on publishing, Swedenborg's Journal of Dreams. Groundbreaking. I know. In 1744, Emanuel Swedenborg was experiencing a, a very welcoming vibe on entering this new realm of his intellectual pursuit to bridge the physical and spiritual realms. Um, his books released thus far had all pretty much received universal praise and sold faster than hot pizza rolls at a frat party. But there's something amiss with him, and his journal of dreams gives us a unique window into what was going on in his massive mind. And the journal begins as one might expect. Swedenborg at the time was traveling to the Netherlands. He writes about the details of his journey, who he met, how the winds were for sailing, and according to legends passed between sailors at the time, the winds were always good for Swedenborg. That's pretty suspicious. It's pretty suspicious, but it's also very, it's true, it's confirmed. Uh, that sailors were like, yeah, every time he gets on the boat, the the storm clouds just go away. I don't Um, don't know, man, This this is sketchy. I know. He also wrote in his journal um, of dreams about what kind of cool landmarks he was seeing, what his digestion was like, and all that normal, like, Swedish stuff. Eastern, Western European kind of stuff. Like, my digestion. Um, but then, the journal suddenly breaks off and picks up again in the middle of the record of a dream. And I found this journal, and I have put some quotations here. So, here's a quotation about this, uh, this dream. I seemed to be reclining on a mountain beneath which there was an abyss. There were projections, which of course, I mean, this is, the translation was, I wouldn't say hastily done, but it's also not the best. Um, projections meaning he was just sort of seeing, like, spirits and ghosts and things. Um, I was lying there trying to get up, holding on to a projection with foothold, without foothold, an abyss beneath. So, yeah. It signifies that I wish to rescue myself from the abyss by my own power, which was not possible. Um, 
A woman was by my side, just as if I had been awake. I wanted to know who she was. She spoke in a low voice, but said that she was pure, but I had a bad odor. Ouch. <laughs> Jeez, can yep, even, yep. can't even escape in your dreams. Yep, sorry, you have bad B.O. She was, I believe, my guardian angel, for the temptation then began. And temptation being more like a test, because um, he does go through like some temptations in his dreams, but it's more like he goes through tests. Which is what temptation literally means. Literally, but most of us think of temptation as like, I want chocolate, but I can't because I'm on a diet. And it's like, nah, okay. Uh, tempestuous temptation. Anyway, so <clears throat> this is the beginning of uh, one continuous dream that Swedenborg had that picked up where it left off every time he went to sleep. Ah, oh, that's that's amazing. You always wish you could do that. Like, you wait, you get woken up while you're at a really cool dream, and you're like, maybe if I go to sleep, it'll come back, and it never does. Yep, never does. So, the dream itself is a tale of Swedenborg meeting dead people, people yet born, and people alive but, like, far away. Um, and it really does read like the scene from Harry Potter uh, and, I think, the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, it is the Chamber of Secrets, where Harry Potter uh, gets sucked into Tom Riddle's journal. Journal, You ever see that? Remember that scene? Yeah, yeah, and he's just kind of like this weird third-person observer to, like, bits of different scenes all happening at different times, and there's no continuity. Exactly, um, and nobody can see him on top of it. Um, except in, in his dream journal, he sometimes is seen and sometimes has things to say or learn. Um, but for the most part, he's just watching these strange scenes uh, play out in front of him. Emanuel Swedenborg a, might be listening to us record right now. He probably is. Uh, he probably dreamed about a shitty podcast called We Talk About Dead People, and he's like, Dear God, the future is bleak. He probably like tore uh, that page out of his journal and burned it before he died. Yeah, that's the, pa <laughs> that's the part where it... It sort of cuts out from talking about the mountains he's seeing to going into the dream. He's like, yep, get rid of that. It was just, it was too dark. He didn't want to doom humanity to despair by telling them what was to come. Yep. <laughs> so, I'm um, just, what I'm trying to say is that it's just this disjointed, strange, mysterious, terrifying work, but it's also unbelievably interesting. Um, there's just all kinds of interesting scenes in there, and... It is just called Swedenborg's Journal of Dreams. You can find it on the Internet Archive if you look hard enough. Um, I downloaded a PDF because I'm going to read it late at night and when I'm trying to scare myself into staying awake. So, Swedenborg himself records all these dreams and early on concludes that these are trying to tell him one thing mainly. That in his work to discover how the soul interacted with the human body, he had failed to maintain his own soul. <laughs> He reached this conclusion because these dreams were usually very dark and reflective in nature. They involved lots of symbolism about his complete worthlessness as a human being, the temptations he had failed to resist, and basically he concluded that he was unfit to work for the divine realm. Ooh. I know. And this eventually put him into a state of depression, and in his diary it's plain to see that he felt unworthy of anything like spiritual work. And remember, he wanted to start delving into this realm, with his massive mind, his mega mind, you might say. Um, and he had all, just recently realized he was fully comfortable, you know, dipping his toes into that river of weirdness. Um, and now he's having these dreams that are telling him, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. And it goes on for about six months. 
So how like how old is he at this point? Like, what, he, what sort of period of life are we talking about? He, he's fifty five. Okay, so he's getting you know getting towards the uh, the ending part. Mm hmm. Um, but as the journal progresses, as you read more along, Swedenborg is more and more frequently reminded that despite his shortcomings in human nature, he must press forward to do the work he was beginning to suspect that God had assigned to him. This work, as it turns out, uh, and he came to this conclusion was to bring the whole world, as Mr. Jones would say, to a new level of consciousness. Uh, so he realized that, or at least he thought, concluded that it was his job to basically red pill the entire world. <laughs> about what, though? Uh, about uh, everything. All the spiritual uh, like shit. About reality? Yeah, about, about reality. Um, he wanted to wake people to fuck up. Um... So Swedenborg's final entry in this journal says the following of this whole dream adventure. This signifies, at the former time, that my head is being put in order and is actually being cleansed of all that might obstruct these thoughts. As also happened at the former time, because it gave me a way in, especially with the pen, as now also was represented to me and that I seem to be writing a fine hand. So basically he's saying like he had to go through this sort of winnowing uh, where he was reminded of what a, you know, disgusting creature he was. And then he was reminded that nevertheless he had to essentially uh, carry out the work of, of God anyway. So he concluded in the October of 1744 that he was indeed on a divine mission and it was his job to explain to the world just how all this spiritual stuff worked. And that's when he began writing in his dry, his, like, notably dry, scientific way about spiritual topics. Um, and he started a book called De Cultu et Amore Dei. Care to translate that one? So, uh, concerning the very loosely translated worship and love of God... Nothing special in there, huh? Yeah, I mean, cultu is a weird word because, like, it related to the English word cultivation. And what it means is that you build up a relationship with a deity by performing certain stuff and doing stuff. And it's the same, it's the means the same thing religiously or in agriculture. You cultivate the soil so that the soil brings you good stuff. You perform the cult of God so that the God brings you good stuff. Cool. That actually helps a lot. And for those of you who are wondering if I am in a tornado right now, I am not. I'm just in a really loud windstorm. Maybe you can't hear it at all, or maybe I'm just being paranoid, but I'm lit my trailer is literally rocking back and forth right now. It's the trouble. ghost of Swedenborg. <laughs> Swedenborg is back! Ah! Ah! He brings the winds of Sweden! Um, okay. So in 1745, Swedenborg was in London. Uh, he's in a tavern, and he's got a private room in the back, and he's just enjoying his dinner. And as he ate, the room began to change around him. It grew darker and abyssal. And as he forked his last bite and brought the morsel of what was presumably something British and therefore disgusting to his mouth, he suddenly saw a man sitting in the corner of the room. Don't eat too much, the man said. Swedenborg dropped his fork. Don't eat too much, the apparition said again. 
Swedenborg got up and hurried out of the room, shaken and stirred. Take that, James Bond. Who was this mysterious stranger who was worried about him potentially becoming a fat ass? Um, so he hurries home, and he calms himself down with a bit of science, and then he goes to bed. But while he was asleep, he had another dream of unusual character. The same man from the tavern appeared to him, but this time he had a different message. Where-where am I? Swedenborg, king of the sciences. Oh, oh my lord. Swedenborg, I have chosen you for a most sacred quest. Do you see this? Yes, y y yes my lord. Do you know what it is? I-I-I-I-I think so. It-it appears to be a Bible, my lord most high. Of course it's a Bible! Did I ever write another book? Did you think it was the Communist Manifesto? I-I-I-I-I'm afraid I have no idea what you're talking about, uh, uh, almighty god. Silence! So-so-sorry. My-my apologies, my lord. I said silence. Now, look upon this Bible, Swedenborg, and look well. This book has been around for centuries, and still none of my sheep have been able to decipher its spiritual meaning. None? Really? Not... not even the monks and scribes of all the monasteries in Christendom? Not even the learned elders of the church, and those who devoted their life to studying the scriptures, none of the thousands of saints who... None. Oh, oh my, well, good gracious. I have chosen you, one of my brightest lights, to finally reveal what it all actually means. Oh, well, I, I appreciate the consideration, but, uh, my lord, I, I don't think I'm up to this task. You soon will be. By the splendor of Christ, you soon will be. I shall open a passage for you into the spiritual realm, and you will see wonders of which you could never spill enough ink to describe. Well, God be praised, my lord. Yes. Now start writing, and make sure it's in Latin. Yes, yes, of course. Wouldn't, wouldn't think of anything else. That very night, it is said that the spiritual realm was open to Swedenborg so that he could write of heavenly things with the authority of the divine. Seeing this as a divine calling of some kind, Swedenborg went ahead and just quit his real job with the Board of Mines, but he maintained a half-rate salary as his pension. And this was, of course, done so that Swedenborg could focus solely on his new holy mission. Which is a pretty sweet deal, I must say. I mean, um, I, I'd take the deal. Yeah, half salary to write, to just pontificate on the wonders of uh, the spiritual realm. That's, I'll take it. So, he started his journey right and began to study Hebrew and started to work his way through the holy scriptures with a fine-tooth comb. His goal was to decipher the specific meaning of every single verse in the Bible because he was convinced that every single sentence written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New had a secret meaning of some kind. This was a project he worked on for the next 10 years, writing what is called his magnum opus, the Arcana Caelestia, which, translation? Um, yeah, the, the heavenly arcane things. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what it is. Um, there was a different translation, but I don't really care. Arcana Kylestia is just way cooler. Um, he released this book completely anonymously. Um, and here's an excerpt that will give you a sense of what kind of book this was. <clears throat> so here we go. I'm going to put on my, my uh, little professor voice again. From the mere letter of the word of the Old Testament, no one would ever discern the fact that this part of the word contains deep secrets of heaven, and that everything within it, both in general and in particular, bears reference to the Lord, to his heaven, to the church, to religious belief, and to all things connected therewith. For from the letter, or sense of the letter, all that anyone can see is that, to speak generally, Everything therein has reference merely to the external rites and ordinances of the Jewish church. Yet the truth is that everywhere in that word there are internal things which never appear at all in the such, in the internal, external things, except a very few which the Lord revealed and explained to the apostles, such as the sacrifice, that sacrifices signify the Lord, that the land of Canaan and Jerusalem signify heaven, on which account they are called the heavenly Canaan and Jerusalem, and that paradise has a similar signification. <laughs> Can I get a reaction from the panel? <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm just I'm I am trying to keep up. I'm, I'm staring at I'm staring at the text and trying to figure out what the hell it's talking about. Uh, so basically, what I got out of it was that he's saying like, okay, look, like uh, you know that really embarrassing book. Um, what's it called? It starts with an L. Um, uh, in the Old Testament. Embarrassing in which way? I don't mean embarrassing. That's the wrong word. It's the one that, it's, it's, uh, oh my gosh, why can't I think of it? Is it the... Lamentations? It's not Lamentations. Wait, is it the sex one? It's not the sex no. one. It has stuff to do with sex, though. It, either way, he's basically saying that, okay, so look, when it said that, um, you know, the Israelites were, like, carving up a goat, or, like, sending a curse onto it and sending it out as the scapegoat or whatever, he, he's saying that, like, most people think that this is just, um... Israelite, a documentation of how Israelites handled, um, like, their, their rituals and stuff, and that's it. Like, it's just a documentation. But he's saying that each and every word, if understood properly, uh, has, like, a secret meaning to it. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm tracking. It, it's out there, but this is what... Clearly we're dealing with some next-level stuff here. Um... The work consisted of 12 volumes broken up by topic, and it was so mind-blowing and high-level that it was a commercial failure. Classic. Because people, people just couldn't get on his level, but that didn't stop him. From 1747 to the day he died, Swedenborg halted his scientific work and wrote chiefly about spiritual matters such as these. In 1758, he published a book in which he claimed that the last judgment of the planet uh, had already occurred oh. in 1757, and that he had watched it happen. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, the reason only he had seen it, um, that, you know, that it had occurred at all, um, was that it had occurred entirely within the spiritual realm and not physical, and that it took place in what you might describe as what C.S. Lewis called the wood between the worlds. Which was why neither heaven nor hell, but was something closer to purgatory, but not quite purgatory. It was just like the spiritual level of stuff, you know, that 
creepy. It was the ghost it was the stuff. it was the game lobby. The what now? The game lobby. You know where you wait for the server to open up. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so like you're you're, yeah, the, you're the, in the game, but you're not really in the game, and yeah, eternal judgments being passed. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds sounds typical to me. Yeah. So the reason that Swedenborg gave uh, for his conviction that the judgment had already happened was that he believed the church had lost its charity and lost its faith, which was directly responsible for the loss of balance within the lives of all who lived in that day and would live forever after until kingdom come and trumpet sound. Basically, he believed that the church was the only thing keeping people from experiencing hell while they were still alive, and it was also the only way a person could experience something like heaven in real life. And without the church, he felt that most people were living in their own personal hells all the live long day and had no hope of escaping. I feel attacked. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Swedenborg can help you, trust me. Um, Swedenborg also uh, also wrote that the second coming of Christ had also already occurred. Oh, damn. um, But not physically. Um, Instead, Christ had actually returned to Earth through Swedenborg's revelations themselves. And that the mission this time around was not to die for us poor sinners, but to make the people aware of the spiritual realm and how it worked. And this is why Swedenborgians have three testaments in their scriptures. They have the old and new, but they also have what's called the third testament, which is basically the entire library of uh, Swedenborg's work. Are you tracking? Are there, like, so they're... This this man had actual like spiritual followers. Uh, we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Um, he he definitely he didn't while he was alive. He just had people who were like, "Oh, this is an interesting take." Um, he also wrote that looking through the spirit world had given him the opportunity to talk to the spirits of the planets. Ooh. He cl- he claimed to have spoken with representatives representatives from Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Saturn, Venus, and the fucking moon and that all these places were heavily populated with other spiritual beings that were not human. I'm starting to, also... I'm starting to get the Alex Jones connection here. Yeah, so, yeah, basically he's saying... Basically that space ruler, aliens. Basically space aliens. Interdimensional space aliens. Um, it's interdimensional and it's space. Swedenborg is on another level. So Swedenborg truly believed that his special window into the spirit world had given him the revelations required to bring humanity to the next level of consciousness. And the thing is, people were really along for the ride. Um, His work influenced people like Robert Frost, Johnny Frickin' Appleseed, William Blake, Arthur Conan Doyle, Emerson, Jung, Kant, who initially liked him but later thought he was just a loon, Uh, weirdly enough, Helen Keller, and eventually Carl XIII of Sweden, who happened to be the Grand Master of Swedish Freemasonry, and used Swedenborg's works for guidance while he was developing Masonic degrees and rituals in the Swedish Masonic Lodge. Very Which, suspicious. I know, we're, get, we're, getting into the, we're getting into the shit now. Um, so the thing that probably had the most effect in convincing people that Swedenborg was indeed on another level was that he was also a confirmed prophet? Um, like in his day, it wasn't just like, oh, he thought about the brain a lot and came up with the cerebral cortex and, you know, neurons and shit. It was just, he was a literal prophet, uh, according to historical sources. Um, for example, on the 19th of July, 1759, Swedenborg was at dinner in Gothenburg, um, and he began to act kind of funny 
Like he got up his, from his chair and he was looking very agitated. And at 6 p.m. sharp, he told everyone at the party that there was a huge fire blowing up Stockholm, like right now. And he was about 400 kilometers or 300 miles away from Stockholm. So people were like, how the fuck do you know that? And then he added further in greater distress that one of the homes in his neighborhood had already been consumed by the flames and he was nervous it might reach his home. So everyone's like, okay, man, like, do you want another glass of wine or do you want to go to bed? You know, another turkey leg, maybe? Um, but two hours later, he calmed down and he told the fire that he was so relieved the fire had... He, he told everyone that the fire had stopped only three doors from his own. Um, this display got him an audience with the provincial governor who wanted to know just what the hell was going on in Stockholm because no word of a fire had reached the area just yet. Why? Well, it's 400 kilometers away, and it usually took a few days, at least, for any news of Stockholm to reach Gothenburg. Fair. Uh, so the first documented message about the fire uh, to arrive at Gothenburg uh, confirmed that indeed there was a huge fire in Stockholm that had broken out exactly when Swedenborg had gotten all jittery at dinner. And it's always dinner with this guy. I don't know why. Something to do with his digestion. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a massive fire, heavily documented, and it was also confirmed by people at this party, as well as the provincial governor, that he knew about it before anybody else did. Um, and his claim was that he'd seen it through the spirit realm. So, another time, Swedenborg was hanging out with the Queen of Sweden, uh, like you do, and she wanted to put his abilities to the test, because she heard about this, and she's like, you know, I, I don't know, you could be, like, a swindler or something, and it's it's possible, I mean, and we'll get to that later. Um, but she asked him to tell her something about her dead brother, Prince Augustus William of Prussia. She said, I need you to contact, like, another dead person or whatever and find out something that only he and I would know. And so Swedenborg was like, sure, and he's like, give me a day. And he goes, and he comes back a day later, and he whispers something in her ear that made her blood run cold. And she jumped up exclaiming that only her brother and herself could possibly know that. Uh, what he told her, we have no idea, but I assume it's something pretty gnarly. Probably what his favorite anime was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, um, well... Anyway, so these are the prophetic moments that really make him stand out during the Enlightenment. It wasn't just like, oh, I thought of some cool shit. It was like, there. by the way, there's a fire going on in Stockholm right now. Um, but just before Christmas in 1771, uh, Swedenborg had a stroke in London and was partially paralyzed and bedridden. A pastor of the Swede Swedish church uh, visited him many times and kept, kept a close record of Swedenborg's final days. While he was bedridden, Swedenborg wrote to John Wesley, the inventor of Methodism, and said that the spirit world had revealed to him that they needed to grab coffee or something. And John Wesley was actually a secret superfan of Swedenborg, and he had told no one about it. Um, so getting a letter from this dude was pretty surprising. Um, Wesley wrote back that they totally should grab coffee. Uh, but he was busy for about the next six months, uh, to which Swedenborg answered, well, it's no good then, because I'm going to be dead on March 29th. Suspe so now he's predicting his own suspicious. death. Yeah. Swedenborg also told the servant girl that was, um, well, he told this, the servant girl that was working at this place he was at in London 
that he was about to make his uh, last voyage to that great Bible in the sky, and it was going to be on the 29th of March, 1772. Um, and she reported that he talked about it like it was marking, he was marking the beginning of summer vacation, like he was excited to die. Um, and this is from uh, Swedenborg's biography. Um, quote, In Swedenborg's final hours, his friend, Pastor Ferelius, told him some people thought he had written his theology just to make a name for himself, and asked Swedenborg if he would like to recant. Raising himself up on his bed, his hand on his heart, Swedenborg earnestly replied, As truly as you see me before your eyes, so true is everything that I have written, and I could have said more had it been permitted. When you enter eternity, you will see everything, and then you and I shall have much to talk about. And then he died <laughs> uh, in the afternoon on the date he had predicted, March 29, uh, 1772, four years before uh, America would um, commence. Yeah, would commence. <laughs> yes. Interesting. So, he, so he's dead. Um, so he was initially buried in London because, you know, you can't transport a body all the way to Sweden that easily. Um, but 140 years later, uh, what was left of him was dug, dug up and reburied in Sweden, uh, near a Swedish church, I believe. Um, in 1997, an entire park, uh, was built near his resting place in his memory. Yes, uh, Swedenborg was dead, but as the saying goes, you may be able to kill a man, but you can never kill an idea. An idea, Mr. McCready. <laughs> v for Vendetta. Mask on. Oh, um, oh, I've, I've never seen it. Uh, what? Sorry. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's a little outdated, but it's pretty good. Um, so, Swedenborg's writings really seem to take off after his death. Um, his critics were always there, including, like we mentioned, Immanuel Kant. Of course, Kant's biggest beef with Swedenborg was that he spelled Immanuel differently. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. They're both, both named Immanuel, in case you were... Okay, so... Uh, Kant actually started off as a Swedenborg enthusiast, but it took him all of three years to eventually reject him on a philosophical level, and, like, reject him hard. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, he's just like, whatever, like, I don't agree with him. It was like, he started, like, calling him a fool and describing his work as, like, he, he said his, uh, prin Principia was, uh, a desultory little essay. Um, oh, yes, making YouTube call-out videos. Yep, releasing exactly. Releasing diss tracks. Yes. Um, but Kant did not disbelieve in the mysticism of the Swedenborgian philosophy. He did thoroughly disagree with a lot of Swedenborg's theology, as did many writers of the era, because, well, there were a lot of problems. And mainly, Swedenborg's idea was that he was the guy who was tasked with the dreadful responsibility of fixing Christianity. And this idea, that's a tough pill to swallow for people who are really, you know, in the big think mode. Um, and we've seen on this show time and time again of people who feel like they're the ones who have some kind of divine mission to set the church right again or complete the work of Christ in some way. Um, you know, like Joseph Smith, Sabotai, Zevi, Zevi, don't care, John, Van, John or Jan Van Leiden, and others come to mind. Um, we've seen it before. Um, and these characters are always very controversial. 
And those who enjoy their writings or their messages are often very, very defensive about their bonus Christs, you might say. Um, which is why I want to be very careful about how I represented Swedenborg on this episode. Uh, I've actually, and this is amazingly rare, I have been acquainted with a few Swedenborgians in my short time on this earth. Uh, I'd hate to step on any toes. Um, but I'll admit, as I read about him, I was mostly fascinated by his seemingly otherworldly contributions to philosophy and science. There is just something alien about how the guy thought. He was meticulous, revolutionary, and mystical all at once. And that's a heady cocktail for someone like me who likes to chew on that kind of thing for extended periods of time. Yeah, no, and it's something that uh, a lot of times goes together. And you may not, from our modern perspective, you may not imagine that. We think of scientists as being, you know, like, oh, they're just, they're all about just rational observation and reporting things. But so many really revolutionary scientists had some really seriously weird stuff going on. Like, of course, Isaac Newton was all about alchemy, trying to turn metals into gold. Like, there was a, a lot of weird mysticism with a lot of scientists. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because... Um... You know, I, I failed to mention Helena Blavatsky thought she was going to, you know, fix world religion with theosophy, all that stuff. It's like, but she got, she got really into the occult and stuff like that. And that's a thing that that elite class, whether in intelligence or wealth, seem to really dig, um, which is to me just so fascinating. And apparently I'm not the only one who's fascinated by this, because about 15 years about uh, after Swedenborg's death, uh, groups began to form around his writings, and mostly like wealthy people who could afford his books. And some scholars believe that the attraction to him uh, was his comprehensive uh, optimism about virtually every subject he talked about. Others believe that he was simply suffering from some kind of mental illness, uh, but that can be easily uh, countered by pointing out that he was always completely coherent and did things other than just go on spiritual rants. I mean, he did hold down a pretty significant job the whole time. And Kant even had a friend who met him and described him as a good scholar and clearly not a madman. Um, and Swedenborg was also perfectly conscious of how his work be would be received by many. He said, uh, quote, Do not believe that without this express command I would have thought of publishing things which I knew would advance in advance would make me look ridiculous and many people would think lies. Which, this is why I call him the Alex Jones of the 18th century. Except, if you don't die a hero, you'll live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Or in this case, if your ideas don't die, you're probably going to see them get twisted around a lot after you do. Which is um, pretty much the way the world goes. So, two years before his death, a royal ordinance in Sweden declared that Swedenborg's writings were mistaken and ought not be taught. Um, Swedenborg himself sent a letter um, begging the crown to reconsider, so a new investigation was opened, but it was stalled until after his death and was eventually dropped. Nonetheless, what was called the New Church Movement began, and that's capital N, capital C, New Church Movement began. And in 1789, they were sending out missionaries all over the world. This included one man named uh, John Chapman, who is better known as Johnny Appleseed. Ah. Who became a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he became a symbol uh, for the new church in America. And he would go around uh, America planting apple nurseries and confronting moralizing preachers with stuff he pulled out of Swedenborgian literature. 
Um, and he generally acted like a huge hippie. Uh, for example, and I'm not saying that as pejorative, I'm saying it as strictly descriptive. Um, for example, he once put out a fire on a cold night because he noticed mosquitoes were getting burnt up. Uh, and he once bought a dying horse just so a farmer wouldn't shoot it. Uh, and Native Americans had a strict no-kill policy on Johnny Appleseed because they believed that he had been, as they said, touched by the Great Spirit. Um, which was sort of another way of, ju just another way of saying they believed there was something wrong with him and to harm him would bring a, a curse on their lands. So, there's that. <clears throat> now we know a little bit about why Johnny Appleseed was uh, such a thing. So anyway, Swedenborgian missionaries were also sent to Africa, largely because uh, Swedenborg himself wrote that he believed that Africans were better at accepting basic truths about the world. Uh, this added many uh, Swedenborgians to the abolitionist movement, and many of them actually adopted freed African new church converts into their homes as early as 1790. And this, of course, put them very much ahead of the curve on the issue of abolition. Um, which they're very proud of. Uh, another interesting leftover from the life of Emanuel Swedenborg is the Rite of Swedenborg, which was a fraternal order modeled on Freemasonry and Swedenborgian teachings. And it was started, this rite was started by a former Benedictine monk named Dom Antoine Joseph Bernetti, who translated uh, Swedenborg's writings into French, and while he was doing the translation, he was like, this guy's on some shit. Um, so like regular Freemasonry, the Swedenborgian rite has members, uh, membership levels known as degrees, and these degrees are Apprentice, Fellow Craft, Master Neophyte, Illuminated Theosophite, so there's your Helena Blavatsky connection, uh, Blue Brother, and Red Brother. Wow. So, I know. Anything to say? <laughs> that is a weird, weird junction there of Freemasonry, whatever the hell the whole Swedenborg thing is, founded by a former Catholic monk. Like, there's a... Yeah, that's a, that's a weird cocktail of stuff. There's a lot at play here. Um, so... I found uh, some good resources uh, about this rite, and one of these was a really old book published in London about millenarianism, uh, millenarianism, that's such a word, uh, that describes the rite as, quote, a blend of Swedenborgianism and Roman Catholicism salted with occultism. Occultism. So, make of that what you will. Uh, little is known about the rituals of the rite practice, and believe me, I looked. Um, but we do actually have an account of two Englishmen who visited the society in 1789. This is a quote from their, their, um, uh, description of their visit. Um, they were finally initiated into the mysteries of their order after a certain process of examination, probation, and injunction of secrecy. Subsequently, they were most solemnly introduced to what was called the actual and personal presence of the Lord, which it appears was affected by the agency of a comely and majestic young man arrayed in purple garments seated on a kind of throne or chair of state in an inner apartment decorated with holy emble uh, heavenly emblems. What's that sound like to you? Hmm. I'm not sure what it sounds like. It sounds weird. Yeah, it sounds weird, right? Um, and I, I got this uh, this information from uh, a literal Freemason who wrote about this. 
Um, because they were, they were basically like, well, the Swedenborgian right is, like, not even, like, a thing. Like, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't the Scottish right, it wasn't anything like that. It was, like, kind of out of nowhere made up. Um, so there, I think the idea was to disparage it, um, by portraying some kind of weird ritual. I really don't know, though. Because there's no, there's no real information from the perspective of the actual people doing it, right? Yeah, um far as I know. Um, so this order would later be demolished uh, during the French Revolution, and it would reappear about a century later, only to be absorbed by a by general uh, Freemasonry, allegedly at the assistance of a certain man named Albert Pike, a figure who would be perfect for this show if I had no fear of getting thrown into a van in the dead of night and never being seen again. Um, and by the way, uh, Margaret, my dear friend, I swear to God, I didn't mean to start talking about Freemasons again when I started this episode. It, it just came up, and I'm sorry. Um, and yeah, like I was saying, by the way, from what I found, Freemasons don't even seem to see Swedenborg as one of them. Um, even though many claim he was, in fact, like a secret Freemason due to his popularity with Swedish Freemasons. But officially, it seems like he just got mixed up in it by coincidence or something. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Anyway, that's the weird shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> that that was some weird shit. I, I confirm this. Yeah. Um, I warned you. I warned you. <laughs> anyway, so today there are like Swedenborgian churches, and there's one called the Swedenborgian Church of North America, also known as the General Convention of the Church of the New Jerusalem, but it only has about 2,000 members. Uh, all told, there are around 10,000 members of Swedenborgian churches, or, you know, chapels, or whatever you want to call them, worldwide. Uh, and that's pretty much where it stops officially. But if you want to keep digging on that Swedenborgian right, uh, you can find some pretty interesting stuff. But that's all I have on Emanuel Swedenborg. And I say, after that weird foray into the unknown and the strange... I say we go back to talking about badass kings again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm down. So where is this uh, general convention of the Church of the New Jerusalem headquartered? I believe it's in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, oh God, oh God, they're here. <laughs> yeah, it's out there. Every time I see the New Jerusalem, all I can think of is: Did you see Valhalla Rising? That really weird, trippy movie about Vikings. No. Oh, it was with the. Um, the crazy guy, um, or the crazy-looking, like, Norwegian actor, what's his name? Mads Mikkelsen. Um, the one Mads who, Mikkelsen. Yeah, he's yeah. in it. It's like a Viking movie on LSD, but I just remember there's this one scene where they, like, end up discovering the new world somehow, and the guy's, like, wading out of their boat, and he's shouting, the new Jerusalem, and then he gets, like, shot by arrows with na by natives. It's like, the whole movie is, like, one extended trip, but every time I see new Jerusalem, I could just think of that scene. There was a scene similar to that, wasn't there? Um, what was that? Some guy in one of these episodes made a prediction that um, the lost tribes of Israel were, like, on Viking ships coming to England or something like that. I can't remember. But you reminded me of that, so there's there you go. Yep. But did you have any thoughts, or did you want to do any discussion on this? I mean, I don't... I don't know what to say about all this. This is all pretty... pretty weird. Um... <laughs> There's a lot going on. Like, there's just so many different different parts to this in terms of uh, 
Swedenborg's doings. There's the whole science thing, which is, you know, independently pretty interesting. But then he's got this whole mysticism, religion thing. Yeah, I don't even know where you'd start talking about this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah, I've got nothing, well, man. One of the weird-ass things I started noticing about halfway through researching this was the numerology on some of the dates. Ooh, um, do tell, do tell. There was some weird shit going on. I actually didn't write it down. I, I prevented myself from digging too deep into that. Um, but, like, his birth year, like you pointed out, um, is kind of suspicious. Um, 1688, two sixteens, add them together, it's 32. I, you know, it's like crazy shit like that. I don't like to dig into that because I think most of that's bullshit. Um, but when it comes to things like Freemasonry and all these, um, these, uh, natural philosophies, numerology plays a big part. Um, and I don't know if it's mixed up with the occult or anything like that, but, uh, I try to avoid that kind of thing because it just drives me a little crazy. Fair uh, enough, fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, I think if we're done then, we should head up to the surface and try and, uh, I don't know, wake up from this dream. <laughs> if we can. If we can. Off we go! Uh, so, George, uh, what are you gonna do with the rest of your divinely revelated day or something or whatever? Um, well, I'm probably going to polish things until they're really shiny. I bought myself a uh, a buffing set so that I can obsessively fixate on polishing things until they're ridiculously shiny. So I'm probably going to practice using that and, like, I don't know, polish a spoon or something until I can see myself in it. A spoon? Really? I, With all the swords you have? I want to start on something small. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, that's probably probably what I'm gonna do. So what about you? What a uh, what divine revel what has divine revelation uh, told you is in store for your evening? Uh, I believe there's a brick of cheddar in the fridge, and I've got nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, your evening sounds better than mine, to be honest. I mean, I can bring the cheese. You can buff that if you want. <laughs> or I can buff a knife until it is gorgeously, beautifully shiny, and then we can use that to carve up the block of cheddar. That's a great idea. Uh, I'll be there momentarily. The sacrifice um, must be pure. The sacrifice must be pure. Well, let's, uh, let's get away from that before we start talking more occult shit. Um, I think it's time to bring our show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. Um, and if you like us, you might be a Swedenborgian, in which case you probably have lots of money, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, you can drop us a little tip for this shit in Venmo, and our Venmo handle is at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of Swedenborg's window into heaven play you out. When you want a hot meal without a big deal, what are you gonna pick? Hot pocket! When a hungry bunch shows up for lunch, what are you gonna pick? Hot pocket!
pocket? Hot Pockets, filled with delicious pepperoni pizza, chicken and cheddar, or ham and cheese in a crispy pocket. When it's late at night and you want a tasty bite, what are you going to pick? Hot Pockets! The hot meal in a pocket. What are you going to pick? Hot Pockets! Try Lean Pockets, too.